You may shoot me with your words. You may cut me with your eyes. You may kill me with your hatefulness. But still, like air, I'll rise. Maya Angelou. Who were the first women who left England and traveled across the Atlantic to settle in Virginia? Who were the women who helped the men and boys arriving in 1607 to Jamestown? Who were the women captured from their homeland, brought across the Atlantic in ships, traded and enslaved? Who were they, you ask? They were strong, they were adventurous, brave and courageous, and most of all, they were tenacious. In part two of the Virginia Quarter, I share stories of Virginia women and their journey to overcome obstacles, oppressive laws, enslavement, and make their impression on history. They are American women. They helped build this nation. We will tell their stories and we will say their names. It's Quarter Miles Travel, where the adventure begins when you reach into your pocket. There's a story behind every quarter design, a story that can take you on an adventure of your own, from one-of-a-kind landmarks to hometown heroes. Start your journey with Anita, one quarter mile at a time. Life is meant to be In part one of the Virginia State Quarter, I shared the stories of the three ships, the Susan Constant, Godspeed, and Discovery, featured on the reverse side of the quarter. The ships came over on charter from the Virginia Company of London in 1607, with only boys and men. Gentlemen at that, they were seeking commerce, goods, and products to take back to England. It wasn't until a year later in 1608 that the first English women arrived in Jamestown settlement. Women and children were few in number until 1620, when approximately 90 single women arrived in Jamestown. It was clear that the intention of the settlement was changing. There was more of a sense of permanence to the colony. Sir Edward Sandys, treasurer of the Virginia Company, stated that the plantation can never flourish till families be planted and the respect of wives and children fix the people on the soil. I'm Anita Thomas, host of Quarter Miles Travel, and on this podcast, part two of the Virginia State Quarter, I share the trials, tribulations, joys, and successes of first women of the settlement that would become America. I talk with my friends at the Jamestown Settlement and American Revolution Museum to share these important stories. Catherine K. Gruber, historian and curator at Yorktown Jamestown Foundation, curated a very influential exhibit at the Jamestown Settlement and American Revolution Museum called Tenacity, the perfect name to summarize the lives and stories of these women. Kate stated, our goal was simply to speak the names of the women who have been for so long written out of traditional narratives, to give them a voice to tell their stories, to reinsert women, Virginia Indians, African, and English into their rightful place in history. This podcast will bring their stories and lives here to be explored, to be seen, to be heard, and interpreted into our views of not only 17th century women, but our lives today. Kate's stories will show you that the common humanity that we share and are connected to continues through the 400 years that separate us. In 1607, we have um, 400 English men and boys who arrive um, in the land that they will call Virginia. And they are the first, um, what's going to be the first permanent English settlement in in North America. Um, So this is, you know, years before the Plymouth colony. But the important thing is, is that those three ships that you see on the back of that quarter um, they don't carry any women. Mm. They don't carry any English women with them. Um, but when those three ships do arrive here um, at Jamestown, 
um, those English men and boys uh, do very quickly start interacting with women who are here, and those are uh, women uh, who are uh, Virginia Indian. They are uh, uh, Powhatan women. It's funny, we, we think a lot about the first women in Virginia, but people always forget there are already women here. There just weren't English women here. Um, you know, but right off the bat, we have um, both in the documentary record, the primary source record, um, evidence of the English men and boys interacting with, trading with um, Powhatan women. And we also see it archeologically. Um, so when the first English men and boys arrive, they build a fort on Jamestown Island. And we see evidence inside the fort of, um, of, of pots, pottery, of mussel shell beads. Um, and these pieces of material culture in the archeological record are significant because they tell us that women, Powhatan women were in the fort. Um, it's, uh, you've probably all, you know, you've, you've heard Pocahontas, you know who that is. She is the favored daughter of the Paramount Chief Powhatan. Um, as a young girl, she's coming into the fort with other women and girls to, to give food to the English men and boys who are here. And those foodstuffs are coming in, in pots, in, in uh, baskets and things like that, that the women are responsible for making. Um, and so to see evidence of, of that in the archeological record tells us that there were um, Powhatan women in the fort interacting with the English there. Um, and must, you know, making muscle shell beads, um, beads out of, out of muscle shells, um, that was a very gendered task. Women were the ones responsible for making that. So to see these production centers of those beads within the fort, um, we can use that as corroborating evidence that there are, there are women there. Would they have been receiving anything? Because usually I tend to think of trading. So mm -hmm. if you were bringing food, were they receiving anything in exchange? Or was this yeah. a welcome where we see that these people need something, so we're going to help? The presence of the Powhatan women within the fort was a very calculated decision, I think, from the uh, Paramount Chief Powhatan, where I think that he, his goal was to, you know, understanding that there were no English women um, that first year, the Powhatan women's presence in the fort was very much a way of kind of um, bringing those Englishmen kind of underneath the, um, you know, not, I don't want to say subjugation, but, you know, kind of within the um, circle, so to speak. The, so, yeah, exactly. So he knows what he's doing by, you know, encouraging the women to go into the fort. I'm, I'm sure you know that the early years of the settlement here, uh, not known so much for planning or for success or for a lot of um, uh, a lot of planting, you know, we think of the earliest years of the settlement at Jamestown as being one that's very driven by um, by economics, by searching for raw materials like gold, by um, by harvesting materials from the land here to send back so that this could be a profit-making venture for a lot of people back in England. So um, the men and boys who are originally here, they think that, you know, other than planting a few crops or, um, you know, hunting some game, you know, what they really want to do is they want to rely on the Powhatan to subsidize a lot of what they don't plan for. And so they're very eager to have that exchange back and forth. Mm -hmm. But what are the Powhatan women getting from that relationship? Um, you know, remember the English are bringing with them a lot of weapons yeah. that the Powhatan would not have had access to. Um, and also copper. Copper becomes a very important um, trade good. Mm -hmm. um, and the English are bringing more copper into the uh, Virginia Indian communities. Um, and that's something that we know is, is a trade item as well. I mean, what are some of the things though that the English would have brought over with them? Uh, because I'm thinking they really didn't know what they were getting themselves into. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. But at the same time, you gotta remember that uh, the vast majority of the, um, of the original, um, colonists who come over in 1607, these are 
pretty well to do. These are gentlemen. They're listed on the roster yeah. as gentlemen. So, you know, it is a it is originally meant to be a kind of a, a, a military expedition. It is a profit finding expedition, but these are gentlemen that are coming over. So, um, you know, it's and it's going to be a little bit later um, within the 16, the 16 teens where even more um, English colonists are arriving. And that's when we do have women and children coming over as well, but they are bringing with them um, items that are specifically going to be for the trade with the Powhatan Indians. Um, and we know that something that was particularly um, desirable um, that we know of through what happens with Pocahontas and her story um, is actually copper and specifically a copper kettle. Um, Pocahontas is actually um, kidnapped um, and uh, taken on board an English ship and she is um, you know, more or less given up um, by, um, by other Virginia Indians. And the, the price for, for that is actually a copper kettle. Wow, that's, yeah. That, that just kind of silences you for a moment. It does because you, you know, so much of, of what we were trying to accomplish with the Tenacity exhibit, which was the exhibition that we did here at Jamestown Settlement, that, um, that told stories of women in uh, Jamestown and early Virginia, a running thread through that exhibit was, you know, what is your life worth? Mm -hmm. um, because in this early era, um, you know, we think so much about um, this, I, this, I struggle with this coming out of my mouth, but women as property, women as commodities, women as something, um, thankfully different than what we experience in our modern times today. Mm -hmm. And for a point in her life, um, unfortunately, Pocahontas was exchanged for a copper kettle. Um, other English women who were coming over, um, largely of their own volition, um, specifically to be, um, to be brides mm -hmm. for the Englishmen who are here, the cost of them coming over would be 150 pounds of tobacco. There is a woman who, um, who is taken captive by the Powhatan in 1622, who is ransomed back, an English woman who's ransomed back into her um, uh, English settlement. And the price for her ransom is two pounds of blue beads. And so, um, you know, you think about these items in your life that, you know, kind of translate to what you're worth. Um, and we were able to pull some of those stories out in that exhibit that we had here um, in the before times. Well, if you just think about a bracelet or something that you own or, or a copper pot or, you know, a plate, of course, and some of those things, you don't think of them as equaling to the value of, of anything that's live, actually. Yeah. Just, yeah. And, you know, this is something that, um, you know, of course, we can see this with the slave trade mm -hmm. in the, you know, in the, specifically in the 17th century. Um, here in our permanent gallery at Jamestown, we have on exhibit a, um, a group of um, items that are called manilas. And what these are, they are, um, I believe they're, they're brass, but they, they originated as, um, they almost look like bracelets. They almost look like I'm wearing a, I'm wearing a cuff bracelet today and they're shaped just like this. But each one, um, you know, this, this was money. This had a monetary value mm -hmm. um, and slave traders, those involved in the slave trade in the 17th century in West Central Africa um, paid for humans in bondage using these manilas. And so downstairs we have um, um, a display in our galleries of a large pile of these manilas. And we make the point that, you know, in the 17th century, there's a specific number of manilas in this pile and it's something like 200. This is the cost of a human being. That is, wow. And this is difficult, you know, this is a difficult conversation to even have here in 2021 mm -hmm. as we reckon with the, the less, less than romantic origins of our national story. Mm, yes, yes. Um, 
so much still to be done. But I want to go back to the English woman that was um, taken by the Powhatan Indians. What mm -hmm. would be the reason that that would have happened? And sort of what, what, what would have happened? How would that have all taken place? Sure. So um, it's actually part of the Anglo-Powhatan War. Um, March 20, it's March 22nd, 1622. And um, the uh, chief of the Powhatan at that time, Opie Cancano, is, um, has instructed, um, you know, his warriors that, you know, on this specific day, no matter where you are, you know, you're to, you know, walk into English settlements up and down the James River here in, uh, in Virginia and, and attack. Um, again, this is part of the, um, part of a longer, a much longer story mm -hmm. of um, Anglo-Powhatan relations in the early part of the 17th century, but this, but this comes to head on uh, March 22nd, 1622. She is living at a place uh, called Martin's Hundred, which is a settlement off of the James River that is hit particularly hard um, on this specific day. And there are over a dozen women that are taken captive. Um, but um, she, yeah, so she's one of over a dozen women okay, who, okay. who are taken captive that day. Some of them um, are eventually ransomed back from the Powhatan um, back into um, back to their English communities. But you know, one of them is a woman named um, Anne Jackson. Mm -hmm. She had arrived from England as part of a shipment of um, 56 women who came over the year before in 1620 and 1621, specifically to be potential brides or brides for the Englishmen who, who were here. Um, and so she arrived probably, um, you know, she, she arrived probably late 1621 with another group of women. And she was specifically, you can see on the, um, on the records of, um, uh, records that exist, um, at the University of Cambridge, you can see her name on, on this list of women. And it says specifically that her and others were to, to go to Martin's Hundred. And so she had probably only, you know, been here since maybe December of 1621. Mm -hmm. And here it is March of 1622. And, you know, she's barely had time to kind of transition into her new life before she is taken captive. And we find out about this because many years later, um, towards the end of the 1620s, we see her name appear in a court case where the court... Um, at Jamestown has, has ordered her brother to keep her safe until an arrangement can be made to send her back to England. But it, but it calls her Anne Jackson, which lately had arrived from the Indian. Um, she's presumed dead for a long time and then you know totally outside of the historic record. And then here she comes back in, um, in like 1628, 1629, where um, you know, it appears that she has been Living with them. Living with them for, you know, six, seven years. And why, you know, it really begs the question, why was her brother ordered to keep her safe? Mm. And why did she need to go back to England? And so, so here's what we assume that, oh my gosh, like she must have been treated terribly. You know, she, she must be like emotionally and physically battered. You know, she was you know, essentially a POW, right? Like, you know, so of course she probably wants to go back home to England. She's probably really, you know, again, kind of emotionally and physically um, struggling. Mm -hmm. But interestingly, so this woman that I told you was ransomed for two pounds of blue beads. Um, when she is ransomed, she is with the Powhatan for, um, for something like two years. She comes back and the gentleman who ransomed her forced her to work off the debt of the cost of the two pounds of beads that he had to give to bring her back into the colony. Well, she takes him to court and she asks that she be released from this debt because he is treating her worse 
than she experienced in her captivity with the Powhatan. And so these two stories together, Jane Dickinson is the name of the woman who was ransomed for two pounds of lead. These two stories, Jane Dickinson and Ann Jackson, really give us pause when we're thinking about what these women would have endured with the Powhatan and what they were enduring just being a woman within this very gendered, you know, patriarchal society, even in this English colony in Virginia. Um, so again, these are difficult, complicated stories. And that's, of course, to say nothing of, of you know, um, we also have in this story, Angelo, the name of the, you know, the, the first um, documented female African who arrived unfree, bound, enslaved in Virginia in 1619, she would have been very aware of what happened in 1622 because she, you know, and what had been happening with women like Anne and Jane, um, because Angelo um, was living on Jamestown Island at the time. Jamestown Island was, was spared from, from what happened on March 22nd, 1622, but she would, I find it very difficult to believe that she wouldn't have been aware of what was going on. Jane Dickinson, who came back and said, you've got to release me from this because this is terrible. I mean, I, I wonder what Angelo would have, would have thought. Would have thought. Now, and this makes me crazy that I don't know what she thought makes me crazy. And you're not taught to think about it in terms of these are real human experiences. Mm -hmm. And I think once you can make that change where you realize that all of the history that we're talking about, all of these women, all of those men that came, you know, um, on the ships in 1607, the the, the Powhatan um, men and women who are, are, you know, who've been here, you know, um, ever, forever, like, these are real people. They are human lives playing out on a landscape and playing out within institutions just like we are today. Okay. And I think if you, you know, if you approach history rem removing that humanity and removing that empathy, man, you're missing out. Yeah. You're, well, you're actually missing the whole story. And, yeah. I, and I like to also think that they had full lives. I mean, their life may not have been perfect or it may not have been easy or they may have been enslaved or captives or whatever, you know, may have been the case for each individual person, but they had day-to-day -day lives it wasn't just, you know, one episode that happened here that you know about historically or another episode. You may know 10 episodes of someone's life, but they lived every day, just like how we do. Yep. Every yep. Day for 35, 40, 50, however many years they lived, they lived every day. That is such a great point. I mean, when we, when we read about these moments mm -hmm. in someone's life or, or find evidence um, you know, in the archaeological record of, of a moment in someone's life, it's a snapshot, you know, and, and you, and you really have to put that in context of what you say. They, they had full lives. They lived full lives. It's like something that, that I try to, um, you know, to teach when I think about my job as a curator, that what I try to do is I try to bring the, uh, the stuff of people's lives. I try to bring um, you know, your material, someone's material life um, into the story. But interestingly, think about what items survive from the past. Think about what items survive from your past. So I know I have my wedding dress at home. And, you know, if I do my job right, like that wedding dress will outlive me, you know, it, it will, it will last because it meant something to me. It was special. I spent more money on that dress than anything else that I own, yeah. um, you know, but, but the, but the clothes that I wear every single day, they have you know, done. I won't have this next year. Right. <laughs> so if someone is, is, is putting together an exhibition about Kate, you know, or if they found this wedding dress, does that give a full glimpse, of you know, of a full picture of what my life was like, what my material life was like? Heck no. I am not, you know, I am in a t-shirt and, you know, a jeans right now. That's, that's not my life. My wedding dress is not my life. And so I bring that up because I think that oftentimes we see these extraordinary materials and we have to remember they're special and they were kept for a reason. They were, 
you know, saved for posterity for a reason. Mm -hmm. It's a snapshot. It's one snapshot of someone's life. And I think you're right to bring that up about just, you know, humans themselves. Right. For again, you know, time and memoriam, the the interaction we have with each other exactly is just it's a snapshot and you have to put that towards people in the past yeah you absolutely do and you have to realize that people wanted their lives regardless of what kind of situations you live through you still want your life you yeah still want to have an opportunity to be the best that you can be or to live the best life that you can or to have your family or you know, to do your hobby, whatever it might be. And I, I think that the people that we study in history, when we get that snapshot, they had the same feelings, even if their lives were still hard. Right, they right. So wanted their life. They weren't wanting to like throw it away. They wanted to be able to live the best life that they could under the circumstances. That... So, so uh, okay, tell me then about the first women that arrived from England. Yes, Mistress Forrest and Anne Burris, um, and this is such an interesting story. So Mistress Forrest, um, she comes over. So let me actually, let me back up. There are no English women in the Jamestown colony for a year. <laughs> so I really want to make that point that you have, you know, you 100, <laughs> 104 men and boys um, without, without an English woman. Now, of course, there are, there are Powhatan women, but but there are no English women who are here until 1608. And two, only two come over. And one of them is already married. Mistress Forrest comes over um, probably to, to meet her husband who was already here. And she brings with her uh, her maid, a young 14-year-old woman by the name of Anne Burris. Well, we were talking about, you know, the, the uh, primary source record. Mistress Forrest drops out. So we don't know how long she was in Jamestown, um, you know, what happened to her when she got here, but she probably wasn't alive here very long because she completely drops out of a historic record. And shortly, shortly after their arrival, Anne Burris gets married. This is a 14-year-old girl who marries a 28-year-old man, a laborer, um, who was working for the Virginia company, who, who was here. Um, so, you know, can you imagine that you, you think that your life is going to be one way? You think that you're going to, you know, you already are, um, you know, probably have, if, if poor Anne is anything like me, she probably had a massive amount of anxiety about, you know, coming over to Virginia. This might, you know, this might as well be the moon. You know, been her choice. She was the maid. Exactly. So she's she's coming over to a place that she knows nothing about, and she's it's just her, it's just her and and Mistress Forrest, and then it's just her. Yeah. You know, she's this fourteen-year-old woman, and she, um, well, not even woman. She's a fourteen-year-old girl, and she, you know, gets married off to this twenty-eight-year-old man, and I am thinking. If I'm, you know, if I'm in that position, I might not look at that in such a bad light. I might think I need some protection. Yes, yes, yes. That's what I'm thinking. Yeah. So we we don't know exactly what circumstances causes Anne to marry John Layden, but it is the first um, the first English marriage to take place in Virginia, and then the two of them shortly thereafter have the first. English child born in Virginia, and they name that daughter Virginia. So that's the story of the first two English women. And Anne Burris Layden is one who continues in the historic record for quite a while. Um, we know that she has at least four children. We know that she actually suffered a miscarriage here in Virginia um, in 1610. She um, is put to work for the Virginia company and she's sewing shirts. Um, and this was at a period of time where the colony was under martial law. So everybody worked for the good of the colony. And this martial law period, you know, really directed the lives of everyone who was in the colony, women and children not excluded from that. Mm -hmm. And so um, Anne and another woman are put to work sewing shirts. She runs out of thread to continue sewing. And so she starts to use pieces of the cloth 
if you're sewing with, um, with linen, for example, you can actually pull little pieces because, you know, bolts of cloth, it's just, yeah, it's threads essentially, you know, woven together. So she's pulling pieces of thread from the bottom of those shirts in order to continue sewing. Um, those shirts did not meet the length requirement set forth by the Virginia company. And so as a punishment, she's whipped and she's whipped so severely that that night she suffers a miscarriage. So women are coming over again in um, 1609 and 1610. We have a, um, another large um, supply um, of, of people and, and goods that, that come over in a very large fleet um, to, to support the, the burgeoning Virginia colony. So there are uh, about over a hundred women and children, you know, family groups that are coming over as early as 1609 and 1610. And that's gonna progress um, kind of in fits and starts throughout the 16-teens. But the next large wave of women that come over is actually in 1619, where, um, where women come over, essentially the majority of these women are rounded up from the streets of London and um, places like Bridewell Prison, these are known, these women um, are talked about in the records that they are, um, you know, they're coming over as indentured servants. They're, they're coming over because um, the, the workhouses are in London are full. And it's going to be pretty tough too. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and, and so the powers that be are trying to empty out these workhouses and trying to clean up the streets of London and they're sending these women. Um, to, to Virginia. So this is 1619. Um, and, and it's right about that time that um, the leaders of the Virginia company are realizing not a whole lot of ladies over here for uh, these uh, single guys to, um, to start families with. And if they don't start families, yeah, you know, if they're not successful, because by this time, everybody's, everybody's working tobacco. Everybody is um, you know, trying to get in on that golden weed, as they called it, get in on that cash crop profit. Um, but if these men are not being profitable and they're not being successful, there's nothing to tie them on the land. And that's the language that the Virginia company uses to tie men to the land. So what do we got to do? We got to get them to start families. You know, we got to give them a reason to put down some roots here. And so that's the, the time um, where the Virginia company starts making arrangements for more, um, you know, eligible young bachelorettes to come over to Virginia. And then we see in 16, um, 1621 specifically, we have um, that group of 56 women who come over specifically to fill that need. And these are, these are women that are called um, um, young, honestly educated maids. So these are women that um, have a certain pedigree. They're not, you know, super high class ladies, but they are women that have achieved a certain amount of domestic education. A lot of them come with essentially resumes that say that they have um, lived and worked in service of um, more high status individuals. Uh, some of them are as young as 14. Um, the oldest is 31, but she actually lies about her age and says that she's 28 which I love. Um, and these are women that, again, kind of through these little, um, you know, these little CVs, these little resumes, which exist in the historic record, we see that they can bake, they can brew, they can do um, very fine embroidery. Um, it's called white work, where you're, you're using white thread to, to sew, you know, to embroider on, on white cloth. There is no reason why anybody would be doing that in Virginia, but she can do it, which means that she's, you know, she's 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 well-bred and well-educated in that way. So it's not like she's going to be doing that here. But these clauses about these women's skills talk more about their upbringing and the kind of women that they are, not necessarily what they're expected to do. Um, and some of these women um, actually do find husbands when they come to Virginia. Um, and we see that um, evidenced in the, the documentary record as well. Some of these women do marry gentlemen who are here, have families, um, and, and flourish in, in the record. But I do want to make the point that as far as we know, these women, this particular group of women, are coming over of their own volition. Mm -hmm. 
they're coming over because they feel that or may feel that this is the best decision that they can make for themselves. Or maybe they have other people in their families or their communities kind of encouraging them to do this. Mm -hmm. But the Virginia company is very specific in their statement that they're going to be hands-off in the mate selection process. No one's going to force anybody to do anything. No one's going to be playing matchmaker. This is, this is up to y'all. And I think that's a powerful thing to remember in the story of this group. So these women, single women who are coming over, they're actually um, being housed um, in the homes of other married colonists, you know, so that they can take their time to, to get to know um, the lay of the land, so to speak. And I'm, I'm using air quotes here. And again, you know, some, some women do within a few months of their arrival. Um, there's a report back to England that says that um, these women made it, they're here. Um, and uh, diverse are already married. So it does appear that some of this must have happened very quickly. And then other women, we just don't know because we don't, we just don't have the record. What mm -hmm. activities were going on in the, in the settlement? Well, church is a good, is a, is a really good example where the community would all be together. Um, and in 1621, 1622, um, you know, some of these women, like I said, some of these women were already going um, to very specific settlements outside of Jamestown. They're going to places like Martin's Hundred, where, um, uh, where it's a, a relatively new but established community where there are, um, you know, there are men. So Ann Jackson, who I mentioned earlier, who's going to end up being um, you know, kidnapped, unfortunately, in March of 1622, she goes to Martin's Hundred because her brother's already there. So I do wonder, too, that there may have been um, opportunities for, um, you know, in her case, you know, maybe, maybe her brother had already kind of, you know, thought about, you know, who might be good for her, uh, you know, when she, when she came into, uh, into the community. So I... If you think about it, we do that today, you know. We do. See, we're not, people are people. We are not so different. I know that 400 years separate us, mm -hmm. but, but in the grand scheme of humanity on planet Earth, we are not so, we are not so dissimilar. So I want to go back to Angelo, the, the African-American woman who comes over. So yeah. tell us a little bit about her and then also the next kind of group of African women that would have come over. Sure. So Angela, we know by name because she appears on two documents um, that still exist in the National Archives in the United Kingdom. So she appears on a census record and a muster where we know she was living um, in, the, um, um, in the house um, of Captain William Pierce. We don't know much about her at all, unfortunately. Um, the, the circumstance of her, of her capture um, in West Central Africa, the circumstance of her um, traveling on um, the treasurer. You can read about what happens um, with the treasurer and the white lion, the, the attack of piracy that happens. She's originally bound for, uh, for Vera Cruz in uh, Mexico. And, and that's, a, that's a, a story that is still being researched by historians today. Um, she does end up um, disembarking in Virginia and being traded for supplies. She is one of 20 and odd Africans that are, uh, that disembark in Virginia, and she's the first woman that we know by name. In the documents that exist, she specifically called um, Angelo on the treasurer, so that's why we know that she was on that ship. Um, arrived on the treasurer, I believe, is the exact language of that document. But, you know, we, so she, she does end up in the, uh, the Pierce household, um, which is, uh, which is at Jamestown. So she does not experience the, um, the warfare that occurred in March of 1622. Um, and in fact, um, the documents that she appears on date to 1624. Or 1625. So uh, we know that that her and other members of her household, which I should mention, actually include um, um, young other young uh, Europe, uh, English women, 
Um, there's another another young English woman who's in that same household. I believe her name is Esther Ederife, um, who was a young unmade, unmarried maid who's living at the Pierce family as well. Um, and yeah, we just, we don't know much about her situation. We don't know. So the documentary record, the historic record doesn't tell us. Um, we know that she was unfree. We know she was enslaved. We know that she was treated as property, but we don't know for how long. We don't know if she was eventually able to, um, uh, to be freed, mm -hmm. to be married, to have children. We don't know any of that in the documentary record. It's, and it's a tragedy that, it's a tragedy that she, you know, was, was kidnapped from her home and brought here, but it's also a tragedy that we don't know more about her and her experience. But there are, there are other women um, um, of African descent who, um, who are able to, who are freed um, in Virginia. Um, we, we tell the story here of a woman named Elizabeth Key, who is actually the, um, the daughter of, of an English-born um, colonist mm -hmm. and, um, and an African-American African woman. And the deal was, is that because she is the, the daughter of this union and because her mother was, uh, was enslaved, that she would, um, she would have her own term of, of enslavement, of servitude in, in Virginia. Um, the uh, long story short, she ends up suing. She ends up bringing her case um, with her, her husband, actually, she was able to, um, uh, to marry um, a, um, actually, an English, was a lawyer who was here in Virginia. So with his help, she's able to bring her case uh, to the court and say, I was supposed to be freed a long time ago. You know, I'm petitioning for my freedom. And this goes back and forth. And it's not just her freedom, but the freedom of her son, because her son was was enslaved as well. And this is the son that she has with this English colonist, this European, you know, mm -hmm. colonist. Yeah. But here's but here's where it gets interesting. This goes back and forth for quite a while in the court system. Um, and finally, she is awarded her freedom. But this is one of, I think, one of two cases that starts getting the Virginia Assembly thinking about about how they are going to codify racial-based slavery. Because in 1622, excuse me, 1662, Virginia makes it a law that the status of the child is the status of the mother, thereby you know, codifying this kind of self-perpetuating enslavement mm -hmm. through you know, kind of a, ma a matrilineal process. Exactly. So Elizabeth Key, having been enslaved, you know, her mother was enslaved, her child is enslaved. And so this, you know, it's, it's, it's wonderful for Elizabeth Key and her family that she won the court case, Virginia thinking, you know, we, we have to, we have to do something, we have to start figuring out, um, you know, how we're going to codify this. So mm -hmm. that case really had a very large impact then on the rules and the laws around slavery. And it's shortly thereafter that too, that marriages like hers with her English husband, her husband's name was William. Virginia also makes, makes mixed race marriages illegal. That law does not get overturned until the Loving case goes to the Supreme Court in the 1960s. So that is how long we're having these conversations. When I, you know, when we we first started speaking about, you know, kind of our you know, our modern, um, you know, current events, very much being legacies of the history that we're, you know, that we're dealing with. That is that gives you an idea of how long, um, you know, those <laughs> those stories persist not just in the history books, but playing out in people's lives. The women of Virginia lived and worked under strict rules and laws. Kate and I had an earlier conversation when I visited the Jamestown Settlement exhibit of Tenacity, 
We talked about those rules and how they influenced day-to-day lives in the 1600s and further into the lives of women and people to come. I want to share some of the conversation that we had from my visit to the Tenacity Exhibit, which featured many of the first women of Virginia honoring their lives and contributions to what would become the United States of America. So we know of one young woman um, who, I'm skimming now, Elizabeth Abbott, um, who doesn't really love her situation here very much. She is one of these women that come up from Bridewell Prison um, and is set to work as an indentured servant. And she really hates it. She's, she doesn't like the way that she's been treated, so she runs away. Every time she runs away, she gets caught and she gets beaten. She runs away, she gets caught, she gets beaten. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, um, one final time, she is caught and she's beaten, but she's whipped 500 times with something that must have looked like a cat of nine tails, but it's tipped with fish hooks and it kills her. Her body is actually found um, a couple yards away mm-hmm. um, from, from the doorstep of, of um, the, the gentleman that she, well, the man that has the indenture over her. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a court case. There's a whole deposition trying to figure out should someone be responsible for her death and no one's ever, no one's ever charged or found no guilty ever. of essentially her murder. With the fish. Yeah, 500 times. Um, English women, whether they come over on their own free will or they're coming over as indentured servants like um, Elizabeth Abbott, they're working in the tobacco fields. Um, They are um, working right alongside of everybody else to keep that cash crop going. Um, This is a boom period for tobacco here in Virginia. People are making a lot of money, you know, very quickly. Um, And it's obvious that tobacco is a very labor, it's, it's easy to grow. I mean, in terms that it will grow anywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, there are writings about tobacco just growing in the streets, but it's labor-intensive. Yeah, the um, harvesting the drying, the road, the, all Picking that. the tobacco yeah. worms mm-hmm. off. I mean, it's just, yeah, it's an immense year-round process that requires dedicated time and labor. So- yes, the work was very, very hard, but so was the punishment for things that really should not even be that important. Things like gossiping. Here's what Kate shared about that punishment. So ducking is a punishment. Um, that is associated predominantly with women. Um, it was a punishment that was levied upon you if you were found guilty of something called brabbling. Brabbling is 17th century gossiping. Uh, one of my colleagues likes to say it's 17th century fake news. Um, women had little opportunity to advocate for themselves, to create change for themselves, and they took every opportunity that they could but sometimes the only thing that they had was their voice. And so the men that wrote the laws found a way to legislate against that voice and to make that voice punishable mm-hmm. by law. And this was the way that, that they punished women. So this is a contraption that you would actually be um, strapped into. Um, it was then lowered into a body of water and you're sitting in it lowered into a body of water, and you are ducked up and down in that body of water for a certain number of times at certain increments based on what the court felt was, you know, was, um, was appropriate to the crime that you may have committed. So you can't move your hands, you can't no, move your legs. No, you're strapped in there. You're grappling um, with the law. We know that this actually happened in Virginia. Mm. And we know that because there is a gentleman who was visiting um, uh, one of the one of the counties in Virginia, and he's writing back to a governor in New England, and he says, "Hey, I just saw this thing happen. It's uh, 1634, I believe." And he says, um, uh, "This woman was found guilty of brabbling. Um, she was, you know, strapped in the chair, and she's actually ducked, um, you know, up and down in, in the water." There's this eyewitness account, mm-hmm. and he says, "What a great, you know, what what a, what an interesting, what a great punishment. We should really look into doing this." up in New England. This law is actually on the books Mm. in Virginia. It's actually ordered that every county, every county courthouse have a ducking chair along with their stocks and their pillory there at the courthouse. Mm -hmm. So a couple things. We know that this happened in Virginia. 
and I want to make sure I get the name of this. Mm-hmm. This happened to a woman named Betsy Tucker. We know that this happened because of that eyewitness account, which means that what? It was she, public. Yeah, it was. So I want to point out to mm-hmm. you that this is public shaming. Mm-hmm. So here's what we know about Betsy Tucker. She was found guilty of brabbling. Don't know mm-hmm. what she said or who she said it to. But she was found guilty. She's given this punishment. And the court orders that she be ducked five times mm-hmm. at 30-second increments each. Mm-hmm. And you know, the thing about public shaming, too, is not so much the punishment of the person being punished. It's to create fear in the people that are watching so that they 100%. would change their behavior. So we know from that record that they actually did this five times until she screamed, um, let me go, let me go. Um, by God's help, I'll sin no more. Mm. And that's in... That's in in the records. records. And this is Virginia law. As you hear, there were definitely laws that were physically meant to to hurt and to shame when laws were violated. But Kate shares another situation where it is definitely all about shaming when the law has been violated. Um, But punishments associated with the linen sheet, um, they're mostly crimes of a sexual nature. So um, adultery. Um, fornication outside of wedlock, maybe birthing a, a child outside of wedlock. Again, this is something that we know happened um, in the court in the court records. There's a woman named Jane Hill who's found guilty of fornication, and she is made to walk into her congregation on a Sunday, wearing a white sheet, and stand there for the duration of the church service. A couple hours standing there public humiliation. Mm-hmm. So guess what? It takes two, right? Mm-hmm. The guy that she's caught with, he's given like 10 lashings. That's it. On your way. There you go. Mm-hmm. But she's got to stand there in front of her whole church, church wearing yes. a white sheet. She's prayed it in. You know, mm-hmm. everyone's sitting. She's prayed it in wearing this white sheet. She's got to stand there. Mm-hmm. Okay. I want to tell you the story about Edith Tooker. She's also found guilty. Mm-hmm. of fornication and she is you know outside of wedlock and she's made to do the same punishment everybody sits down in their um in their church pews whatever and here she comes in being led in wearing this white sheet and we talked about a time machine earlier and how mm-hmm. we should go back in time mm-hmm. if i have one moment to go back in time this is it mm-hmm. i want to be in that congregation when everybody witnesses edith took her tear herself out of this white sheet. Mm. Mm-hmm. I want to see the look on everybody's face. face. Yeah. Because I'm willing to bet you that half the women in that church are going, yes. Yes. Uh-huh. <laughs> yes. Um, so again, we know through the court record that, that's that what happened, she yeah. did like a most obstinate and graceless person cut and mangle the sheet wherein she did penance. Unfortunately, she's punished for this offense. Yeah, she's sure. taken out, she's given a whipping, and she is made to repeat this in two weeks' time mm-hmm. um, at two different at two different congregations, actually. So she's got to go through it twice. And you know what? I can't tell you anything about Edith Tooker. I know Except that she that. was in Norfolk. Yeah. I know that she was found guilty of this and that this is how she reacted to it. I don't know how long she was here. Mm-hmm. I don't know who she married or if she married or if she had a family or if she died. Mm-hmm. The only thing I know about her, the only reason why I know her name. That one act of defiance, of yes. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. Okay. Tenacity. Okay. As hard as these rules and regulations are for the early English women who come to Virginia, there are some breakthroughs. So I want to remind you here that women uh, do have a certain amount of, of rights and, and opportunities in Virginia that they don't necessarily have in England. I should, let me back up. Let me say free English women Mm -hmm. have a certain amount of right and opportunity that they don't have in in England. So women can actually own property here. Women can be ancient planters. Women can marry and amass um, quite a bit Mm -hmm. um, of of land, of property um, under them. Um, Temperance Flowerdew, her full name is Temperance Flowerdew Barrow Yearly West, I think is her full name. She is one of these incredible survivals where, well, she's a survival. She survives a couple different husbands that are pretty high up and connected. Um, And so she is able to um, basically keep working her way up Mm -hmm. and becomes a very, you know, this is a very powerful family, very powerful matriarch Mm -hmm. in early Virginia. And in this next clip, I share the story of an enslaved woman, Mary Johnson, and her husband, they do get their freedom. 
Jones, Mary and Anthony Johnson, two early Africans who arrive here in Virginia. Mm. Um, this is before, um, you know, uh, codified racialized slavery is is really legally binding here in mm-hmm. Virginia, lifelong slavery. Um, so Mary Johnson um, actually marries um, uh, a man named Anthony. They have a family. Um, they end up um, being free, um, living yeah on Virginia's eastern shore, and so while they are eventually uh, forced to move further and further north, I think Delaware, yeah, um, Mary is telling us that there's a lot that's still in flux here in early Virginia. Um, I don't want to say that she's a success story because it certainly wasn't her choice mm-hmm. to come and live in Virginia. Um, but she has a certain experience at a time where that window was closing mm-hmm. to have that experience. I mentioned to Kate that it seemed to be a bit of contradiction in what the Virginia Company of London wanted and then what the rules and the laws were once they arrived in Virginia. She shares with me what they gave to the women and what the real true expectation was for the settlement once it moved from being commercial to actually being a settlement, something permanent. So the Virginia Company is recruiting women um, that, that had a certain skill set. Um, we see in the Ferrar papers that the majority of these women, um, it's listed that they can, um, they can do embroidery, they can do black work and white work, like what we saw around the corner. They can, um, they can milk, they can, make, um, they can make bone lace. These aren't necessarily the skills that they are going to be spending their time doing here in right. Virginia. Milking? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. But making bone lace and embroidering? No. Uh-uh. So it's not necessarily saying what they could do in Virginia. It's giving us an idea of their education, mm-hmm. of their status in England. And kind of, it's a marker of, okay, this is the type of woman yeah. that we want to bring over to make, um, make wives here. So, But we know their records. Uh, from the records that the Virginia Company paid for these white lambskin gloves for every woman. A glove is a very, um, um, it's a gift of betrothal. Oh, um, so okay. it's very, you know, symbolic. If you're going over to be, you yeah. know, to become a bride to someone. Right, yeah. Um, we know that they were provided with a book of Psalms to, to read on the ships. Mm-hmm. Virginia was becoming a settlement, and these women were making their mark. They were making America. Their stories and their names should always be part of the building and making of America. We, we just, we have to keep saying these names. We have to keep learning from their mm-hmm. stories and, and it might sound cheesy, but, but you know, we are their legacy because yes. we're all here. Mm-hmm. These are the stories of the first women of Virginia. I am not free while any woman is unfree even when her shackles are very different from my own. Audrey Lord, let's say their names. Jane Wright, first woman in 1626, accused of witchcraft. Esther Adderite, worked as a maid. Ann Jackson, captured by native people, then sent back to England. Jane Dickerson, ransomed for blue beads. Edith Hooker, punished and shamed in her church. Betsy Tucker, punished in the dunking chair. Jane Hill, punished and shamed. Elizabeth Abbott, beaten and whipped to death. Kakakoeski signs a treaty with England to save her people. Lady Margaret Wyatt, an educated woman. Mary Johnson, gains her freedom. Temperance Flowerdew Barrow Yardley West, becomes very powerful. Ann Tanner, Audrey Hoare, Alice Burgess, Joan Pierce, Elizabeth Key fought for her freedom and the freedom of her son. Pocahontas traded for a copper pot and taken to England. Angelo, the first documented African woman in Virginia. Ann Burris Layden, one of the first of two women to arrive in Jamestown. Women, if you believe the soul of the nation is to be saved, I believe that you must become its soul. Coretta Scott King. To learn more about the Jamestown Settlement, visit the Jamestown Settlement and American Revolution Museum in Yorktown, Virginia. Visit their website at historyisfun.com. 
For more information on the U.S. Mint State and Commemorative Quarters, visit their website, usmint.gov. For Quarter Mouse Travel Pictures and Research Websites, visit our website, travelwithanita.com. Quarter Mouse Travel would like to thank our guests, Catherine Kate Gruber, historian and curator, and Tracy Perkins. Both are from the Jamestown Yorktown Foundation. This episode of Quarter Mouse Travel, the Virginia Quarter Part 2, is sponsored by Alliance Travel Insurance, your one-stop for all of your travel insurance. Visit their website at alliancetravelinsurance.com. Thanks for listening. Click the subscribe button for upcoming episodes of Quarter Miles Travel. Reach in your pocket and pull out that quarter. And Quarter Miles Travel will take it from there. We'll turn that quarter into an adventure.